Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 17, Numbers chapter 15. Well, last week we discussed this great rebellion of the Israelites against Jehovah when they refused to trust him. And so they balked at entering the promised land that had been set aside and prepared just for them. And more, we examined the consequences of this rebellion, which was wandering in for 40 years in the desert with none of those that had attained the age of accountability ever being allowed to enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. But we also talked about a foundational God principle that scholars have dubbed vertical retribution. Now, in a nutshell, the principle of vertical retribution is that the divine punishment due to a father for a sin against God can be postponed and later experienced by his children or even later generations. And the same principle also applied to mercy. That is, the mercy due to a father could be postponed and given to his descendants. Now today, we're going to continue in examining more of this particular principle and some more important God principles that are fleshed out in this uh, 15th chapter of Numbers. Now I want to reiterate, especially to newcomers to Torah class, that the New Testament that's so important and invaluable to us all is basically two things. First, it tells us who the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament turned out to be, along with the high points of what he did and why he did them. And second, it's commentary on the Old Testament that takes into account the coming of Yeshua and how it brings so much of the meaning of the Torah commands and the prophets' oracles of the past into better focus. And that's why more than half of the phrases and the sentences that form the New Testament are merely direct quotes taken from the Old Testament scripture. But we also need to grasp that any commentary, the commentary of any kind, by definition comes after the presentation of the foundational material. That is, all any preacher should do today, and most do so, is to comment on what has previously been written, specifically Holy Scripture. Now, the Torah and the prophets are the foundational material, and so the New Testament comments on it, Paul especially. Now, in Hebrew, this, this kind of commentary is traditionally called Midrash. So, if all one reads is the commentary, but never the foundational material, we're going to get some things right and some things wrong. It's the Torah where we'll find all the foundational God principles explained in detail. The New Testament fully expects its readers to have already taken Bible 101, which is the Torah. Without it, it's like attempting algebra, without ever having studied basic math. We may well get something out of the algebra classes, but the meat will go undiscovered, and the reasons that underlie these algebraic formulas will go unknown and therefore will at times be misused and misapplied. Now we won't spend but a short time with this, but there is an important feature of this vertical retribution principle that I'd like to make a little clearer. 
And it is that generally speaking, if a person who committed an offense against Jehovah was repentant and contrite, Salah, pardon, of the punishment could be postponed and transferred to the next generation of his family. Now, understand, this punishment was pardoned in the form of having it passed forward. But the sin and the guilt of the commission of that sin remained permanently. However, if that next generation accepted and acknowledged that they rightfully bore the iniquities of their fathers, that they accepted and honored God's principle of vertical retribution, and they repented for it, and they themselves asked for salah, for pardon, for forgiveness of this punishment, then that punishment could be moved on to the next generation, and so on and so forth. Now, in our modern political era, we call this act of passing a problem forward, kicking the can on down the road. That is, rather than a political leader facing some terrible, naughty problem and, and doing the right thing, because it's politically explosive, he kind of finds a way to put a band-aid over it and let whoever the next leader who replaces him inherit that problem. And, of course, typically the next leader is handed this can of worms and his goal becomes to kick that same can and as many others of them as he can down the road a little bit further to his replacement and so on and so forth. So, built into the concept of vertical retribution is this ability to kick the can down the road. The punishment due the sinner is postponed and passed on to the next generation. And if that next generation is contrite and asks for pardon, it can pass the punishment that it was meant to bear forward, and on and on it goes, theoretically. Now, let me emphasize, this isn't some ancient superstition. This isn't a doctrine. This is a very foundational biblical principle ordained by the Creator. It's woven throughout the entire Word. It has everything to do with why we need a Savior. You see, God's not a man that he should change or forget. When justice is due to God, because someone has broken his commands, justice must be extracted. It can't be any other way. Or God is simply fickle, arbitrary, and he can't be taken at his word. However, the postponement of justice, and that someone who is innocent can bear that just punishment in place of the guilty party, legally allows God to do what he really wants to do. Show mercy to his creatures. Point being, as thousands of families kick that can of retribution and punishment on down the road through all the generations of mankind, the buck had to end somewhere. It all eventually had to fall on somebody. It's not an endless road. It doesn't just keep going on forward and forward into eternity future and then somehow God just kind of forgets about it all. But, but what human could bear all this retribution and guilt that had built up over the centuries within his own family, let alone for a whole world full of families? That can of uh, postponed retribution that had been kicked down the road for so long stopped rolling when it reached the feet of Yeshua. 
when we read of how our Messiah paid for our iniquities, it was not just for the iniquities of the generation in which Jesus lived, nor was it only for future generations. It was for the iniquities of the fathers, the iniquities that had occurred in previous hundreds of generations. And it was God's principle of vertical retribution that played a key role in allowing those destructive divine retributions to be postponed until we had a Savior who could bear them for all past generations. You see, we may have escaped that divine punishment that we rightfully should have experienced, a punishment that is not only ours because of our own actions, but ours due to the sins of our fathers that have been passed down to us. But, even if we were oblivious to it, that, punish, that punishment indeed was actually extracted. It was laid upon Jesus Christ. So, in that way, God's justice was literally fulfilled, as it always must be. Punishment was postponed for a very long time, but it was eventually meted out in full to Yeshua on that cross. Now, Yeshua, in many ways, transformed the dynamic of vertical retribution. In John 9, 1, when a man asked Jesus why a certain man was born blind, he wanted to know if the sins of that man's father had caused his son's blindness, or was it that man's own sins? What this fellow, of course, was referring to was the well-understood principle within Judaism of vertical retribution. Jesus responded that neither that blind man's own sins nor the sins of his father, as it turns out, were the issue. Rather, he was blind so that the works of God could be manifested in him, and then Jesus proceeded to heal him. But you see, what we see here is that Jesus demonstrated and later said that a man would bear only his own sins. But that meant from now forward. From the advent of Jesus forward, this would be the case. Not because the principle of vertical retribution changed or was canceled, but because from this time forward, when God granted Salah, when he granted pardon to a man had, who had sinned against him, a man who then asked God for Salah in the name of the Savior Yeshua, the divine punishment was postponed against that man and transferred to Jesus. When a man in our era sins, believer or non-believer, that man, you, me, anybody, is due divine retribution. And a non-believer is going to bear that punishment himself. Spiritually speaking, it will be after his physical death when he receives the eternal death. But for the believer, our remedy is to trust in Christ, to be contrite, to repent, to ask God for pardon, Salah, in his name. And Jesus will then bear that divine retribution that was due to us. And the God-established principle of vertical retribution that we find here in Numbers is that foundation of enabling Christ's atonement for mankind as a viable substitution for what should have been our own personal, eternal destruction. Let's move on into Numbers chapter 15.
open your Bibles, please, to Numbers chapter 15. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 165. So, we're going to read it all, so follow along, please. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, when you come into the land where you're going to live, which I'm giving to you, and you want to make an offering by fire to Adonai, a burnt offering or sacrifice, to fulfill a special vow, or to be a voluntary offering, or at your designated times, to make a fragrant aroma for Adonai, then whether it comes from the herd or from the flock, the person bringing that offering is to present Adonai with a grain offering, consisting of two quarts of fine flour mixed with one quart of olive oil, and one quart of wine for the drink offering. And this is what you are to prepare with the burnt offering, or for each lamb that sacrificed. Now for a ram, prepare one gallon of fine flour mixed with one and one-third quarts of olive oil. While the drink offering, you are to present one and one-third quarts of wine as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a peace offering for Adonai, there is to be presented, along with the bull, a grain offering of one and one-half gallons of fine flour mixed with two quarts of olive oil. For the drink offering, present two quarts of wine for an offering made by fire, a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Now do it in this way, for each bull, ram, male lamb, or kid. For as many animals as you prepare, do this for each one, regardless of how many animals there are. Every citizen is to do these things in this way, when presenting an offering made by fire as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. If a foreigner stays with you, or whoever may be with you throughout all your generations, and he wants to bring an offering made by fire as a fragrant aroma for Adonai, he's to do the same as you. For this community, there will be the same law for you as for the foreigner living with you. This is a permanent regulation throughout all your generations. The foreigner is to be treated the same way before Adonai as yourselves. The same Torah and standard of judgment will apply to both you and the foreigner living with you. Now Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them, When you enter the land where I am bringing you, and you eat the bread produced in the land, you are to set aside a portion as a gift for Adonai. Set aside from your first dough a cake as a gift. Set it aside as you would set aside a portion of the grain from the threshing floor. From your first dough you will give Adonai a portion as a gift through all your generations. Now if by mistake you fail to observe all these commands that Adonai has spoken to Moses, yes, everything that Adonai has ordered you to do through Moses, from the day Adonai gave the order and onward throughout all your generations, then if it was done by mistake by the community and was not known to them, the whole community is to offer one young bull for a bird offering as a fragrant aroma to Adonai with its grain and drink offerings in keeping with the rule, and one male goat as a sin offering. The Kohen, the priest, is to make atonement for the whole community of the people of Israel, and they will be forgiven, because it was a mistake, 
And they have brought their offering and an offering made by fire to Adonai and their sin offering before Adonai for their mistake. The whole community of the people of Israel will be forgiven. Likewise, the foreigner staying with them. Because for all the people, it was a mistake. Now, if an individual sins by mistake, he's to offer a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. The priest will make atonement before Adonai for the person who makes a mistake by sinning inadvertently. He will make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. No matter whether he's a citizen of Israel or a foreigner living with them, you're to have one law for whoever it is that does something wrong by mistake. But an individual who does something wrong intentionally, whether a citizen or a foreigner, is blaspheming Adonai. That person will be cut off from his people. Because he has had contempt for the word of Adonai. And he has disobeyed his command. That person will be cut off completely. His offense will remain with him. While the people of Israel were in the desert, they found a man gathering wood on Shabbat. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses, Aaron, and the whole congregation. And they kept him in custody because it had not yet been decided what to do with him. Then Adonai said to Moses, This man must be put to death. The entire community is to stone him to death outside the camp. So the whole community brought him outside the camp and threw stones at him until he died, as Adonai had ordered Moses. Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, instructing them to make throughout all their generations tzitziot on the corners of their garments and to put with the tzitzit on each corner a blue thread. It is to be a tzitzit for you to look at, and thereby remember all of Adonai's commands, and obey them, so that you won't go around wherever your own heart and your eyes lead you to prostitute yourselves, but it will help you remember and obey all my commands, and to be holy for your God. I'm Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to be your God. I am Adonai, your God. Now, this chapter has caused many a Bible scholar a lot of heartburn, because for some, this chapter seems out of place. Therefore, they conclude that someone inserted all, maybe parts of this chapter at a later date, maybe as late as 200 B.C., but I don't agree with any of that. I can easily see the relationship with the, with the previous two chapters and the need to follow them immediately with the contents of chapter 15. As the previous two chapters concerned the most serious sort of rebellion against Jehovah, Moses and others had the greatest concern of whether or not the Lord was going to continue to honor his covenants with them and whether or not he would allow Israel to still enter the land or on the same or at least a similar basis as had been explained to them sometime before the rebellion. So to me, the contents of chapter 15 not only fits, it's necessary so that the people of Israel will understand that God will bring his people into Canaan. Therefore, among the first few words of chapter 15 in verse 2, when God says, when you enter the land I'm giving you to settle in, God says, when, not if. So we see that God's salah, his pardon, of the rebellion is sufficient. That he simply wants to get on with his plan. Settling the land of Canaan with the Israelites. And from there the Lord gives further instructions. A bit modified from the earlier ones. 
concerning sacrificing. Now what's key for us to notice is that the rules and laws he is about to command to Israel will not take effect until after they enter the land of Canaan, some 38 years into their future. Now these laws do not take effect immediately. In fact, there is precious little way they could practically be carried out because the resources of grain and wine and a sufficient number of animals suitable sacrifice under these more stringent and larger sacrificial requirements now being prescribed could only happen in a settled society when agriculture and ranching was well organized. So this chapter shows clearly that God did not reject his people Israel because of their rebellion and that their unfaithfulness had not nullified God's faithfulness to them and to his own covenants with them. It also demonstrates that repentance plus, plus the offering up of proper sacrifices, which in the larger sense indicated Israel's return to respect and obedience of God's commands, now that could bring restoration and reconciliation with Jehovah. Now, as we enter verse 3, we find that all the animal sacrifices that are considered as an ishe, I-S-H-E-H, ishe, type of offering, were to be accompanied with an offering of grain, oil, and then some kind of liquid, libation offering, it's called. Now, just what is an ishe sacrifice? Well, this has stumped rabbis and Christian scholars alike. Often it is translated as a burnt offering. But that's off the mark, because the Hebrew word for the very specific type of sacrifice called a burnt offering is olah, O-L-A-H. Now, others translate this translate this uh, ishe uh, sometimes as offering by fire. That's probably a little closer to the idea. Some think it ought to be translated as a food offering. Now, in reality, we can't be totally sure of the original intent, but rabbis from before the time of Christ treated this term, ishe, as a term more meaning a gift, or in the context of how it was actually practiced. We could say it's a gift of food that was burned up by fire on an altar. So, any animal sacrifice that was a type in which either the priest or the worshiper, or maybe both, could keep a portion of the sacrifice as food for themselves, it had to include a sacrificial offering of grain, oil, and often wine. Now, forgive me for getting a little deep into the technicality of the exact nature of this Ishe sacrifice, but you know, we need to get used to the fact that there were several precise types of sacrifices, each one of them for a different purpose, just as we find several different covenants of God, each with a different purpose. One sacrifice, the newest one, didn't abolish all the others, and neither does each new covenant that God made with Israel abolish all the previous ones. Now, we covered most of these sacrifices in Leviticus, and we're not going to go over them again. And I am convinced that the reason for the several variations of sacrifices that we read about was to teach us this multifaceted nature of sin and its consequences. You know, modern Christianity has wanted to make sin a very simple matter. A sin is a sin is a sin. Implying that whether you commit 
genocide on an entire nation of people, or you steal a car, or you lie to your mother, it's all the same thing to God. That's decidedly not true. And the Torah methodically and explicitly shows us that some sins and some evils are much worse than others in God's eyes. And the method of explaining this to us is by means of the reasons and the rituals for each of these various kinds of sacrifices. Let's also not let that statement of producing a pleasing odor to the Lord or a fragrant aroma to the Lord in verse 3 slide right by us. I've talked about this before and asked you to be on the lookout for it. It was an ancient belief way before the Israelites, Israelites were ever around that at least part of the purpose for the burning up of animals on an altar was to create a smoke that rose upward into the nostrils of whatever god or goddess was being worshipped. Now, while in retrospect, we, we can take this as a metaphor for the Lord being pleased over the obedience to his sacrificial laws, I can assure you that to the Israelites' minds, they were thinking precisely what their pagan neighbors were thinking. That Yehovah was getting pleasure from the actual smell, from the actual aroma of that smoke. And this is important. Because we mustn't think that just because Yehovah declared Israel to be a holy people, that they automatically thought or behaved in a holy or obedient manner. They operated from the general beliefs of the world of which they were part in that era. God was only in the earliest phase of a long-term re-education process of his people. In verse 5, we see the mention of wine being designated as a libation or a drink that is a liquid portion of the offering. And it seems quite appropriate that after the rebellion, in which the scouts brought back these huge clusters of grapes, so symbolic of this idyllic fertileness of the land of Canaan, that God would choose to emphasize the need for wine as part of the sacrificial ritual. Well, I want to skip on down now to verse 14, because it opens up an issue that is of importance to all students of the Bible, and especially those who already know Yeshua as Savior. If you want to know some more details about these various kinds of sacrifices that were spoken of here in this chapter, in these first several verses of Numbers 15, then go back and review my teachings on the subject in Leviticus. Now, this issue concerns what our English translations call strangers or foreigners within Israel. Israel. And it all centers on what obligations these strangers or foreigners living within Israel have as regards sacrificial ritual and the worship of Jehovah. Now probably in our modern world, the best term that gives us a, a clearer mental picture of what was meant by a stranger or a foreigner in the Bible is a resident alien. In other words, these are legal and welcomed immigrants from another race of people, another nation. They're non-Hebrews who continued living as non-Hebrews, but they did so among the Hebrews. In the biblical Hebrew, the word is ger, G-E-R, ger. So before we look more closely at just what Numbers has to say about the obligations of a foreigner, a ger, 
Let's look more closely at just what a gear in ancient Bible times was. Now first, the concept of a gear was, as so much else that we find in the scriptures, about, particularly about very early Israelite culture, common in Middle Eastern in the Middle Eastern region of the world. So the concept was neither new to the Israelites nor was it a new scriptural invention with a new meaning to the Israelites simply because it was included in the Torah. In English, there really is no satisfactory single word to translate ger. In its simplest biblical sense, it means a protected stranger. A protected stranger. And this concept of a protected stranger is sacrosanct in the Middle Eastern cultural idea of what constitutes hospitality. In other words, a guest in one's home, even a complete stranger who might have only happened upon your house in his journey, was to be not only welcomed and given food and shelter, but also he was to be given protection and sanctuary. And this protection was guaranteed by the very lives of the hosts. But that concept could also carry one step further. If that stranger wanted to remain in a in that villager family he had happened upon. And the idea was that in return for his being protected, a person not of that tribe would be cared for, provided he was loyal to that tribe who he wanted to care for him we wanted to join. Now the reason that we need to understand the many nuances of a gear is that the New Testament writings explain that Gentiles who come to faith in Yeshua are both compared to Gerim and contrasted to Gerim. Gerim is just the plural of gear. Now, in other words, those of us who are Gentile believers have biblical similarities to a gear, but also some important differences. So, if we're to better comprehend this mysterious and complex relationship that we have as Gentile Christians to Israel, we need to better grasp the concept of a gear as it was intended in the Bible. Perhaps a man named W.R. Smith wrote the most concise description of a biblical gear well over a century ago. And he said this, and I quote, The word gear goes back to a nomadic lifestyle. And it denotes a man of another tribe or district who, coming to sojourn in a place where he was not strengthened by the presence of his own kin, put himself under the protection of a clan, or a powerful tribal chief. Well, during their time in Egypt and their flight from Egypt, Israel had many strangers, many Gerim attached themselves to Israel. The same thing happened when they conquered Canaan. Many Canaanites attached themselves to one Israelite tribe or clan or another as Gerim. It was common knowledge what the rights of a Ger were and were not in the ancient world. So the Bible doesn't go to any length at all to explain to us. It was just commonly known in the Bible times. Because it's so difficult to define this word precisely, it's probably better to discuss the attributes of a gear, a foreigner, a stranger, a resident alien. Well, first, 
Israel regarded itself nationally as a gear before it moved to Egypt while the patriarchs were still living in Canaan and all during its time in Egypt. That is, they saw themselves as protected strangers, resident aliens in Egypt and in Canaan because it wasn't their land. In fact, even after they possessed the promised land, theologically, they still saw themselves as a gear. And this because God made it clear that while Israel would possess the land, they wouldn't own it. It was Jehovah's land. And the Israelites were essentially leaseholders. Now, where would they get that idea? Well, listen to Leviticus 25.23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently because the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Hmm. What the original Hebrew says is that the land is mine. Mine meaning God's. For you are but ger with me. By ancient tradition, gerim couldn't own property. So the Israelites well understood what God meant. That they were gerim with him. They would never be able to sell their property because they would never own it in the first place. Therefore, gerim had to either be employed as workers on someone else's land or as craftsmen that uh, had a trade. Often, they were wards of the state. That is, they were under the authority of a tribe, but they also received a kind of welfare or aid to survive. Now, just as, theologically speaking, Israel itself were gerim to the Lord, even after they possessed Canaan, so were the Levites, that special priestly tribe of Israel, the Levites were gerim to the Israelites. The Levites could possess no land. They were under the protection of the tribes of Israel. Twice in the book of Judges, 17.7 and 19.1, in fact, the Levites are specifically referred to as gerim among the Israelites. So, there was a kind of pecking order established. There was not full equality between the Ger and the tribe or nation he was sojourning among. A Ger was, in some respects, a second-class citizen. Among Israel, the Ger, person of another race who came to live among Israel, had equal protection under the law, but didn't always have all the same privileges as an Israelite. Where was the difference? Well, if we can divide Israel's laws into the civil, and into the religious, this is where we can see the distinctions. In other words, when the civil laws, such as murder, rape, adultery, theft, so on, came into play, the Ger and the Israelite were on equal footing, and both were obliged to obey the civil law, be punished according to the civil law, and to live under the terms of that same civil law. Now let me be clear, this, when I say civil law, I'm not talking about a law separate from Torah. Torah contains both civil and religious law, and this is what I'm talking about. However, obedience to those religious laws was another matter. Just as the whole law can be seen as divided into these two basic groups of civil and religious, so Hebrews have always seen the religious law as divided 
into two basic groups. The type that prohibits and the type that commands something to be formed, uh, performed. Sometimes these two types are called negative commands and positive commands. Now in general, a gear must obey the negative religious commandments, but is not always required to obey the positive religious commandments. As an example of this, the gear has no requirement to observe any of the biblical feasts, but he's perfectly welcome to join in if he wants to. However, if he does decide to join in, then he has to do them properly. He can't do it his own way. By way of an example of how a gear must obey a negative religious commandment, we can look to Leviticus 17. In Leviticus 17.15 it says this, And when any person eats an animal which dies, or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening, then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Well, where the verse says that this applies to native or an alien, the Hebrew is native or ger. Okay, this also gives me an opportunity to mention something that I have only recently come to understand, and it's this, that often in the Torah we will see a statement, something on the order of, there shall be one law for you and for the resident stranger. Or, using our Hebrew, there will be one law for you, Israelite, and for the Ger. Now, where I've gone wrong in the past is that I more or less assumed this to be a general, broad statement and, and principle about the laws of Torah in total. And in fact, it turns out it really isn't a general principle. It's referring only to the law, regulation, or command that's within the context of that statement. So, when a command is given, and then just before or after it, it says there shall be one law for the Israelite or the Ger, it's referring to that particular law, not necessarily all the laws in general. Now, this is fully validated by many rabbis, and especially uh, the famous Ibn Ezra. An important thing to understand indeed, I think, for us. Now, understanding just what a ger is, and that it is generally translated, though not particularly thoroughly, by the English words of stranger or foreigner, and that indeed a ger is a second-class citizen, even though they are required to obey at least the negative commandments, just as all Israelites are, I have a question for you. Are you Gentile Christians? a ger among Israel? Or in relation to Israel, are you something else? Well, I've got the answer for you. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2, and we're going to read verses 8 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, Ephesians chapter 2 begins on page 1460, 1460. I'm going to start reading again at uh, verse 8. We're going to go through to the end. For you have been delivered by grace through trusting, and even this is not your accomplishment, but God's gift. You weren't delivered by your own actions, therefore no one should boast. 
For we are of God's making, created in union with the Messiah Yeshua for a life of good actions, already prepared by God for us to do. Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who, merely because of an operation on their flesh, are called the circumcised. At that time, you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants, embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope and without God. But now, you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. For he himself is our shalom. He has made us both one and has broken down the makista which divided us by destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah with its commands set forth in the form of ordinances. Now he did this in order to create in union with himself from the two groups a single new humanity and thus make shalom and in order to reconcile to God both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal and thus killing in himself that enmity. Also when he came, he announced his good news, Shalom to you, far off, and shalom to you, those are who are nearby. News that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you are members of God's family. You have been built on the foundation of the emissaries and on the prophets, with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself. In union with him, the whole building is held together, and it is growing into a holy temple in union with the Lord. Yes, in union with him, you yourselves are being built together into the spiritual dwelling place of God. What, what an amazing thing for us to hear. This is the proof we need. Gentiles were at one time foreigners. We were gerim to the covenants of Israel. We were strangers, allies, ger, who were excluded, as all Gerim are, to the national life of Israel. But, faith in Yeshua has brought us near. In fact, we're made fellow citizens. So we're not Ger. We are now part of that entity called True Israel by Paul in the book of Romans. And here in Ephesians, it's called synonymously the household of God. We don't become fleshly citizens of an earthly Israel, we become spiritual citizens, along with our fellow Jewish believers, in a spiritual, ideal Israel. And this is all by means of the covenants that God had created with Israel. Now we're going to go further into chapter 15 next week and begin to address some more of these deep and foundational God principles that we find here.